Welcome to the second episode of Access, focusing on COVID-19 testing. My name is Fatima Hassan. Access is a podcast of the Health Justice Initiative in partnership with Volume. This show aims to unpack access to healthcare in the context of COVID-19, and we do this by looking at local and global developments in the sector. In today's episode, we discuss the challenges with scaling up COVID-19 testing in South Africa, including the systemic and intellectual property barriers to getting more testing kits in South Africa. Our special guests are Dr. Shoaib Manjra, Candice Sahoma, and Catherine Tomlinson. It's such a pleasure to have you join me for this discussion. Shoaib is a Health Justice Initiative Reference Group Advisory Member and a long-standing public health advocate and doctor in Cape Town. Candice is the Medicine on Frontiers Access to Treatment Advocacy Officer in South Africa. Catherine is a freelance health reporter and journalist who also writes for Spotlight. Welcome. Shreb, it's wonderful to have you on the show. I thought that we could ask you a few questions about your current experience with testing for COVID in the Western Cape province. It's been a challenging time, Fatima, and thank you for having me on your show. Um, it's a t- challenging time for, so we've got to stratify our populations into two population groups. The one population group, which has access to private facilities, and the second population group, which doesn't have access to private medical facilities or private health care, and therefore need to rely on state services. So I've got probably an equivalent population in, in both groups, and, and it's been fairly mixed and patchy. Um, so, so let's look at the, the public sector. Um, you know, initially at the, at, at the outset of the pandemic, uh, the state sector was just phenomenal. Um, you know, I used to send a patient through, they used to test the patient, um, the results, the result turnaround was pretty good. Um, they used to inform us of the information and they had a whole group of volunteers who used to contact us for contact tracing of every positive case. Uh, so I was really impressed at the, at the outset when, uh, when this was working because they had contact tracing, uh, your turnaround time was good, you know, easy access to, to testing. And, and the criteria for testing at that time was pretty, was pretty easy. The, the, you know, the, the threshold for getting into testing was, was pretty good. But, but as the pandemic started kind of getting worse and the numbers started rising and there was an overwhelming of the system, uh, it became frustrating for a number of reasons. The one reason was the, the access to testing. There were people who were turned away uh, because even if they did meet the criteria, they were told they don't meet the criteria. And even if they met the criteria, they were turned away once the criteria had changed. Um, you know, once the system had become overwhelmed, people who had symptoms of COVID and who clinically you thought were COVID could not get tested in a public facility. So they were, they were turned away. So in a, in a sense, we had to move from a laboratory confirmed diagnosis of COVID to a clinical diagnosis of COVID. 
And obviously that's fairly fluid in terms of how you make a clinical diagnosis of COVID. But obviously that also impacted on the statistics, you know, so how do you, how do you report a clinically positive COVID without a lab test confirming it? Uh, so that was one of the other challenges we had when, when the state cut off, you know, when they said they're only going to test people who are at risk, which currently is the situation. So, so you saw that kind of evolution of the way testing happened in the, in the state sector. The biggest frustration is that, that I was waiting for test results in some cases for three weeks uh, and those test results never arrived. Uh, and, and some of them had already come back to work. Some of them were still symptomatic. And, and the test results just didn't come. Um, now, I don't know whether they eventually discarded those whole lot of specimens they were sitting with, with that huge backlog they had at one point in time, but, but clearly the, the waiting period for results turnaround was, was not very good. So, so clearly that was, you know, that was very frustrating for us from a, from a testing point of view. In, in, in the private sector, we managed to get testing done fairly easily initially. Um, there was a period of about two weeks, about a week ago, you know, prior to that two weeks where there was a huge rush for testing the private sector and, and the turnaround time in the private sector went up to about five to six days. Before that, it was 48 to 72 hours. Um, and, and, you know, just, and, and, and the private sector was, was pretty good on, on testing for us. And, uh, but, but now, I mean, I've got a note from them that, you know, if there's uh, if there's testing to be done, they've expanded the capacities. Now, and I'm talking about PCR testing. I'm not even going to antibody testing, which is something we can talk about later. Catherine, you've written a really informative and brilliant article for Spotlight. You know, can you can you just take us through some of the findings uh, which you refer to in your article? The NHLS, I would say, is definitely has been doing their damnedest to scale up access to testing and to enable access to testing. And so they have been identifying that we need larger quantities of test materials and ordering those. They've had long waits for access to test materials from companies like Cepheid. And now they've put in place systems to allow them to procure test materials through this recently launched African medical suppliers platform. Um, But they're in a difficult space where it's very difficult for them to be efficient because they don't have the the cartridge-based testing systems that would allow them to reduce the amount of work around processing each test. Um, And they're having to switch from diagnostic platforms and test materials all the time, depending on what's available, and so that really kind of interrupts the the efficiency that they can that they can run with. I mean, Candace, you work for an organization that has been at the forefront of the global demand for opening up platforms and for overcoming uh, patent barriers to save lives. And MSF has done significant work in the global access to medicines movement on HIV, on TB, on cancer. There's been quite a good role in terms of pushing for the local production and also just investing in like local companies to scale up um, these testing kits. And I know um, they also recently did like um, uh, open for applications for um, to give grants to local uh, manufacturers who would be able to um, uh, manufacture manufacture these, um, manufacture PCR tests as well as antibody tests. Yeah, I think they've done quite tremendously in terms of um, pushing for that. And now currently there is, um, I think, three uh, two identified companies um, locally that would be able to um, produce these um, 
manufacture these PCR tests and should start production by end of July. You know, I mean, the costs range from between 750 Rand to 1200 Rand, you know, depending on which laboratory you went to. There were new laboratories which came onto the market. We were prepared to test for you. And, you know, I mean, I've got results back in less than 12 hours in some cases. I mean, I tested somebody yesterday, I think, or Wednesday, and I got a result back in a very short period of time. So it depends on who you know and depends on what the testing is for. So, for example, if you're going, if you're a healthcare worker or, or the person is preoperative, then, uh, then you could get the test done, you know, you got a very good turnaround, in some, but in some cases it took more than five days from even from the private labs to for the test results to come through. And then there were there were kind of conflicting messages coming out. So, for example, uh, you know the, the the Department of Sport and Recreation says that all of your players before they go back, I mean your professional sport before they go back to play, you need to test all of them. Now that's a couple of hundred people who who are kind of putting an added burden on the system. Uh, then there were conflicting report, uh, you know, conflicting guidance from the Department of Labor and the Department of 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 Health. You know, one is saying that to, in order to return back to work, you must return, a, you must do another test which is negative, and the Department of Health was saying, no, you don't need to do that. So there was again conflicting reports. My view is that the, the public health system was unprepared. So initially, I think, I mean, the, the, the praise that we, you know, we, we, we got from the World Health Organization was probably because we had a super system. And, and I've already related to you my experience of how that system really worked at the, very, at the beginning of the pandemic in, 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 uh, in Cape Town. Um, and, and I was impressed that they had phoned uh, both the patient for, for contact tracing, they phoned the workplace for contact tracing, uh, so, so I mean, all of that kind of just ex- worked extremely well. But it, 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 I, I think once the numbers began to overwhelm the system, I think everybody, everything just fell flat. So, so to me, everything had to do with the unpreparedness of uh, of the health system, and therefore they had to change the criteria to try and limit the number of people they tested. So, I think that was the challenge in terms of a lack of preparedness. Um, and, and then clearly we also ran short of reagents uh, and therefore uh, your, your testing had to be curtailed and uh, because of, of, uh, of a lack of reagents at some point in time. Who supplies the reagents? How does South Africa fit into this global demand for reagents and for testing? Because obviously we're not the only country, right, that's yeah. trying to ramp up testing. And, and uh, at the time of recording this show, we, we're the world's fourth highest of known new infections? My understanding is that those reagents are imported. Um, I'm not sure if they're produced locally, um, but my understanding, speaking to some of the laboratories at some point in time, that they, these reagents were imported. And there was a huge demand for these reagents from all over the world, um, you know, as they would be for vaccines and for testing kits. Uh, so, so many of these reagents were imported and therefore there was a shortage when, when we really needed it. Uh, in fact, what some of the mines, for example, did was very interesting because the mines realized that they needed to do testing on their employees because of, of the, the high risks at that point in time. And, and they were actually prepared to purchase equipment and reagents and house them in private laboratories for dedicated use for their employees uh, because they could they could see a shortage and a and a and a, and a kind of run on the system, uh, so so they were prepared to do that. And in fact, in some cases, they have done it in uh, in Gauteng. 
um, where they've kind of bought this equipment and, and, and left it and, and, and kind of procured reagents. Now, now they've got economies of scale and they could do it. Um, so, so yeah, that's the way it's, some of the industries try to overcome that, uh, that logjam. It's such confusion. It reminds me of the early days of HIV testing where nobody was allowed to do anything unless you could prove that you were HIV negative, for example. One of the challenges is that the symptoms of COVID-19 overlap with symptoms for many other diseases. How do you make a clinical diagnosis of COVID-19? Um, so do you take one symptom? Do you take three symptoms? Do you take five term symptoms? Or are there specific key symptoms that you look out for to make a diagnosis of COVID-19? Now, I can tell you from my experience, and um, you know, I don't know how scientific this is, but the loss of smell and the loss of taste is probably one of the most defining <laughs> symptoms that I've seen in patients. If somebody comes to me in this context and tells me I can't smell and I can't taste, I can tell you probably over 90% confidence that they've got COVID-19. Um, so I've seen a whole range of symptoms among people I've seen, you know, from, from headaches to, to sore throats, um, you know, fever, not in very many, I mean, probably in about 50% of people I've seen. So, so the clinical diagnosis is always, always a challenge. But, but, but you know, with, with the constraints we currently have, you've got to say, fine, okay, this is the basis for a clinical diagnosis of COVID-19. So, so I think in many cases, we can either use the precautionary principle. So if anybody has any form of symptoms, we kind of make, we, we, determine, we determine them to be part of what we call a PUI, is a person under investigation. So we can use a precautionary principle and, and use a kind of a minimum you know, number of symptoms that they have, or we can use a maximum number of symptoms, depending where you want to kind of place it. So, so obviously you make a clinical diagnosis of it. Candice, you've been part of the local campaign to fix South Africa's patent laws. Can you tell us a bit more about the Fix the Patent Laws campaign in South Africa, which MSF uh, is a part of? Fix the Patent Laws um, campaign is uh, a coalition of about 40 organizations, um, ranging from cancer organizations, uh, HIV and AIDS, TB organizations, sexual reproductive health organizations, and mental health organizations. Um, what Fix the Patent Laws seeks to do is to, um, it's advocating for the reform of South Africa's patent law to ensure affordable access to, to medicine. So this camp, I mean, this coalition has been going on for about ten years, and since since then, um, one of our victories, the Department of um, Trade and Industry, um, had has published um, an IP policy which reflected um, some of our asks in terms of um, incorporating TRIPS, trips trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights um, have been incorporated into the, inter, into, into the IP policy. And currently what we are doing is now um, advocating for the law to be reformed, um, also reflecting those TRIPS flexibilities in the in our national law. MSF has done significant work in the global access to medicines movement on HIV, on TB, on cancer. You've also written recently um, about the need to break patent barriers in relation to scaling up testing in South Africa. Can you take us through um, some of the work MSF is doing globally, but also here in South Africa in terms of trying to open the testing for everybody in all countries? 
Yeah, I think there definitely is um, a very limited like overall supply of capacity. And also, I mean, due to some export restrictions from major exporting countries um, have posed a barrier in terms of accessing, especially in many low and middle income countries that uh, most of our projects are um, uh, situated. There is a need um, to facilitate um, local production. Um, I think uh, considering that most countries are whole Holding onto their own and, you know, hoarding um, um, these essential uh, devices. I think there is a need um, for systems and policies that would facilitate local production. And in order for that to also happen, I think there is a need for more global response to that. Um, and, and this also speaks to um, the need for open access to technologies, um, the need for know-how and, and sharing of raw materials, even for products where local production is possible. Oftentimes, you know, local productions may need have may need to have access um, to technical expertise and raw materials in order for um, to start up and ramp up production. So I think it, it I mean, in terms of the work that we have been doing as MSF is also just trying to um, push for governments to acknowledge the role that intellectual property plays in terms of um, the barrier it plays um, when it comes to access to these essential um, medical tools. Like if you were before the Competition Commission tomorrow, what would you ask them to investigate in relation to testing? I think the Competition Commission could launch an investigation into the pricing of test materials by Seffert and Roche, as well as their ability to supply, um, so to supply in order to meet the demand, and also invest, look at how patents and trade secrets are blocking other companies from coming into the market to develop the needed test materials that can be used on their platforms, which are widely available in South Africa and could significantly ramp up. COVID-19 testing if we had access to adequate test materials. The barriers and the reality to scaling up testing, which is what everybody wants, um, is also influenced by a number of these multinational companies. We've got all these patent barriers, uh, but we've now moved from a laboratory diagnostic testing strategy to a clinical diagnosis and rationing and criteria. So what does South Africa do in a global context like this, in a situation like this? Yeah, but anyway, I think, I mean, you know, I think that this, this whole thing, I mean, look, there's been a huge amount of predatory pandemic profiteering um, and, 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 and something we need to be, to be conscious about and that these companies are going to profit, attempt to profiteer hugely from this pandemic, notwithstanding the fact that much of the research and development into many of these vaccines is publicly funded. And we know that of many other patents as well. You know, this, this is public research which has been privatized by some of these huge companies and, and they make mega profits on it. So in, in a sense, the public is paying twice for this. They're paying once from the taxpayers because of, of research funding and then they're paying because of the profit sharing by private sector. So, so clearly globally, this is something that needs to be, needs to be tackled. And we're going to face that challenge, both in terms of the testing kits, but also when the vaccine comes out. Um, yeah. You know, there's going to be a huge demand on those vaccines. And, and we know that, that powerful players like the United States are going to claim, you know, first right over, over these, these medication and the vaccines and these testing kits, which they've already done. And, 
and, and clearly, I think we need to use, you know, multi, first is we need to use multilateral institutions to ensure that there's some form of justice which prevails around the world. So whether it's multilateral trade institutions or, or multilateral political institutions need to be used for it. The second is we need to use, you know, um, the courts like we used during HIV and AIDS on, uh, on, on the patent for, for antiretroviral drugs and, and to ensure that there's accessibility uh, to poorer communities and to public facilities, you know, for, for such, uh, you know, either the testing kits or, or, or the treatment for it. And thirdly, we need the publics to, to kind of rise up and, uh, and, and join these causes in terms of, uh, of demanding that the government does something to ensure that we get affordable, accessible uh, healthcare. Um, and this includes you know, community-based testing, clinic-based testing, and the vaccine when it becomes available. So, so I think there's kind of a number of ways we need to do it. And I think there's some case studies, you know, I mean, uh, you know, we can use the example of India or we can use what the Netherlands have done um, to try and, and, and frame the actions in South Africa in terms of how we can, we can tackle some of this predatory behavior. There, there's also just a lack of transparency around the patent landscapes for these different technologies. And that's something we've seen in the pharmaceutical and diagnostics sector for a long time is that the way that these technologies and the way that medicines are, are patented is done in a way to really create so much confusion both for government and competitor companies that they don't even want to take it, take these issues on. Um, and so there's also a role for governments to play in terms of increasing transparency. Um, I would say as well as ensuring that patents and knowledge and data are pooled so that all countries and companies all countries can have access to them and more companies can come into the market. There is also a huge need for transparency of allocation because currently we just we don't know how many tests Cefid is sending to which countries. The demands of the Fix the Patents Law campaign are so clear. Government hasn't listened for many years. Uh, it doesn't seem like they're likely to. But even if the law is not fixed, we are still permitted right, through an international framework to, during this pandemic, um, to make use of the demand for technology transfer. So South Africa does have provisions in its law that enable compulsory licensing and government use licensing. So South Africa has provisions in its law that will enable it to overcome patent barriers. The problem that Fix the Patent Law is trying to address is the fact that these provisions aren't, um, they can be, they need to be improved. So there's currently a challenge that it's overly complex um, in South Africa's laws to grant the process for granting compulsory licenses and that they really leave government open to legal challenges. And as we've seen in many other countries, these pharmaceutical companies are not shy to challenge governments and take them on and tie them up for years and years and years in courts. And they have deep pockets to continue these court challenges for years and years. Industry still wants to profit out of, you know, um, out of people's lives. And that's a sad reality. And I think until government also um, take a stand, um, because we can't really expect um, industry to actually um, change the way they work. This is how they've worked for all these years. But I think 
governments and um, these big institutions like the WHO have a very big role to play in terms of um, enforcing policies, enforcing um, laws um, that will challenge or rather push um, uh, these um, pharmaceuticals and industries to do things differently. I mean, in your view, having worked on, you know, global access issues um, in other parts of the world, as well as in other parts of Africa, what what do you think are the one or two things that the South African government could still do more of? One area that the global community has um, spoken a lot around and worked a lot around is the creation of a, a pool that would pool um, patents and know-how um, for health technologies used for COVID-19. And I think that there should be pr- the, the, that pool could, could play a really important role in terms of enabling more companies to come into the market and produce these test materials that are, are in short supply. And when they do not do it voluntarily, then governments still have the right to to issue compulsory licenses and to use their competition commission mechanisms to to force competition into the market. What we've also seen is that the US and other countries have used or threatened the use of trade sanctions to prevent countries such as South Africa from issuing compulsory licenses. And so the real change that we're seeing now is in terms of seeing developing developed countries also using these compulsory licenses is that it actually creates a situation where they may be normalized and where America and other countries that have long resisted and sought to fight against the use of compulsory licenses and tried to frame them as as a form of threat are now are now going to have more difficulty in doing that because these compulsory licenses are simply policy instruments in order to ensure public access and public benefit from innovation. And they're policy instruments that don't steal technologies from companies. The licensees are required to pay royalties to the innovator companies. And so they're policy instruments the government should be using on the regular in in Mm. a global pandemic. And the fact that we haven't been able to, that we haven't seen them yet is definitely an issue of political will, as well as an issue of our laws needing to be reformed to protect South Africa from legal challenges and to make it easier and quicker to process these type of licenses. Yeah, so definitely an argument to have a clearer, more enabling legal framework that is not deferential to patent holders, but is deferential to saving lives and to the public. Thank you so much for making time to be on our show. It's been absolutely fascinating to listen to Dr. Shweb Manjra, Catherine Tomlinson, and Candace Sahoma. Thank you once again for joining us on Access. I'm Fatima Hassan, and remember to tune in next week for episode three, which will focus on treatment access in the time of COVID-19. This episode was brought to you by the Health Justice Initiative and Volume. Goodbye.